welcome everybody. Um, it's nice to see so many of you here on, on this nice summer evening. So welcome to the MC and the Forum for European Philosophy. My name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and also a Fellow here in the Philosophy Department. And to tonight's discussion is part of the Forum's uh, Consilience Series, as we call it. The basic idea here is that we're trying to bring together people from different disciplines, with different perspectives, to discuss a topic or a question or, or an issue of common interest. Um, and tonight's topic is the philosophy of mental illness, which uh, obviously is, is a very multifaceted and, and interdisciplinary um, topic, and so I think lends itself particularly well to this kind of interdisciplinary discussion. And indeed, we have three speakers tonight who will address this topic from different but hopefully uh, mutually compatible and um, yeah, just interesting perspectives. So um, our first speaker will be Tim Thornton, who is Professor of Philosophy and Mental Health at the University of Central Lancashire. And uh, our second speaker will be Bonnie Evans, postdoctoral researcher at the Centre for Humanities and Health at King's College of London. And our third speaker will be Matthew Broom, Associate Clinical Professor and consulting psychiatrist in early intervention um, at the University of Warwick Medical School. And so the different perspectives that we'll have today are um, the perspective of philosophy, of social science, and of psychiatry from a clinical, practical point of view. So I think that we'll be covering a lot of different aspects and questions tonight, including so the broad overarching question is really how should we think of mental illness? Is a mental illness ultimately something that can be explained or should be explained in neurobiological terms? Should we think of it as a medical kind of concept, a medical kind of disease? Or is there something that's different when we talk about mental illness? Is there something maybe irreducibly mental in that concept that can't be just put in terms of neuroscience or medicine? Um, Obviously, when we talk about mental illness, we sort of contrast that with what we take to be normal. So what, what do we mean by that? Is there even such a thing as an objective concept of normal? Um, also, how is the classification and perhaps also the treatment of mental illness related to broader societal events and uh, issues? So we can see when we look at the history um, of how people talk about mental illness and treat mental illness changes over the history which have perhaps been related to, to other things going on uh, in that society or that culture. At, um, sorry? We can't hear. Oh, is the microphone not working? Okay. Oh, I need to have it closer. Okay, good. Thanks. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, so these are some of the questions that we'll discuss today. And so um, without much further ado, I will just hand over now the mic to the speakers, which obviously you're coming uh, to hear. Um, so the way we will do this is that each speaker will briefly give, a, give an initial statement about their approach to this topic and some of the things that they would like to discuss tonight. Then we'll have a bit of a discussion here at the panel, and then we'll open up the discussion to get questions and um, contributions from you, of course. And so, yeah, I'll hand over to Tim as our first speaker. Uh, thank you very much. I now need to work out where, where on this screen is my... Uh, Haha, lovely, wonderful, great. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me here. It's a, an interesting experience for me in part because uh, for two years I had a proper job here 
at the LSE, uh, I had uh, what seems to be an impossible task, which was to try and work out ways of allocating space equitably within the LSE. Uh, I went grey very quickly and realised that there are some tasks which are just impossible for finite minds to comprehend. Uh, Going first, what I thought I would do is is not, in in fact, address uh, substantive issues about the nature of mental illness. I'm hoping that we can can discuss that. That will be part of what comes next. What I thought I would do in perhaps the least content-filled of the initial uh, introductions is just to say something a little bit about the nature of the interaction of philosophy and psychiatry. My own professorial title is Philosophy and Mental Health, mental health, mental illness, and psychiatry as the scientific underpinning of one of the ways in which we look at that are all interrelated notions. So I'm going to say a little bit about the relationship between philosophy and psychiatry. Uh, And what I've got are just some pictures of books. Uh, But this is the centenary year for Carl Jaspers, seminal work, General Psychopathology. And that was the time when there was a very close interaction between philosophy and psychiatry. Uh, Jaspers was a philosopher and a psychiatrist, holding chairs in both. And Jaspers had some very clear ideas, well, perhaps key rather than clear, about what psychiatry could learn from philosophy and philosophy learned from psychiatry. And to some extent, 100 years ago, was the heyday of the first period of philosophy and psychiatry, the philosophy of psychiatry and the relation between them. Uh, And so I'm delighted that this year, 100 years later, this enormous book is forthcoming in this summer. This is the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy and Psychiatry. It is huge. And the reason that this book is coming out now is that we've reached the end of the beginning of the new philosophy of psychiatry. And so we've reached a time when it's possible to take stock and to have a look and see what the lie of the land is. And so this is a book with many, many contributions. And it's, in a sense, the end of a period when we've returned to the idea that philosophy and psychiatry have something to say one to another. So I just want to show some of the signs of the activity in this field. So here's here's the the beginning and end, as we currently speak, of the Oxford book series, the OUP, International Perspectives in Philosophy and Psychiatry. Uh, On the left is the first book in that series, Nature and Narratives. On the right is the 50th book, uh, One Century of Carl Jasper's General Psychopathology, due out this year. So there has been a lot of intellectual activity in thinking through what we can learn from the interaction. The OUP book series is one. There are other series Uh, MIT has a book series that began in 1995. We have a a house journal, in effect. I apologise for the appalling quality of the picture here, but this is the journal Philosophy, Psychiatry and Psychology, which began publishing in 1994, and attempts to bring together both philosophical and clinical and also service user voices in looking as broadly as, as possible at the academic area. It's got breadth, It's got breadth rather than a a narrow focus. Another indication of the activity is the uh, establishment of the International Network of Philosophy and Psychiatry. I put up here the the flyer for last year's uh, conference, which was in Otago, which was completely delightful. 
there, there is an annual conference every year, sort of. This year, sad to say, perhaps because of financial difficulties in the Eurozone, there, there isn't one. But there will be one next year in Bulgaria. This year, there are lots of conferences going on in Britain uh, to make up. So there's an international network. And there are courses. Uh, I, this is a, a flyer for my own course at the University of Central Lancashire. I should now say other courses are available. So there are, there are lots of indications that work is going on. But I just wanted to spend two or three minutes saying something about the nature uh, of the work. And so one of the, the things that I've tried to say is I've tried to use the, the, the and as the linking word, the conjunct between philosophy and psychiatry, rather than of. Now, to some extent, philosophy and psychiatry really is philosophy of psychiatry. But on the other hand, it's a discipline in which the people who are taking part are typically philosophers and psychiatrists. And the psychiatrists are doing the philosophy of the subject and the philosophers are drawing on psychiatric and clinical findings. I'll return to say a little bit about those the, the, the limits on who are the, who are the authors in, in just a, a minute. Uh, there's also a two-way traffic. One of the reasons that there's a two-way traffic is that lots of the issues that face mental health care that have to do with the conceptualization of mental illness are deeply philosophical. There is a thin line between the pathology of illness and simple difference, and much hangs on that difference, since uh, almost uniquely in healthcare, mental healthcare carries with it the possibility of coercion and compulsion. And that raises deep, deep and contentious issues in what the justification for, for that is. So we, call, we, talk of the philosophy, we talk of philosophy and psychiatry, the international network is of philosophy and psychiatry, for example, because of that two-way traffic and because Philosophers and psychiatrists are both responsible for trying to, to advance the subject. But it's also an organic development from the nature of mental health care. This isn't an area in which the philosopher preys or predates on the psychiatry in that philosopher king or queen role. That isn't, that isn't the nature of the discipline. Instead, in, in such issues as the DSM, and Matthew's going to talk about that in a, a little while, psychiatrists themselves are interested in what should be a taxonomy of mental illness. What should a taxonomy look like? And in doing that, perhaps rather breathlessly, they bandy about such phrases as searching for a, a paradigm shift in classification. And they wonder about the, the nature of differences between different mental illnesses, whether there have to be boundaries between them. And in asking those questions, they're asking conceptual questions in which, for which philosophers can provide some of the answers, some of the, the exploration. So I don't think of philosophy as preying on psychiatry as so much as philosophy is forming a, a natural self-conscious reflection on good mental health care. But also there are interesting tensions and stresses in thinking about mental illness. So the, the dominant ideology of, of mental health care at the moment, healthcare in general, is the rise and rise of evidence-based medicine. And evidence-based medicine is an essentially general approach to the gathering of good quality evidence. And yet at the same time, there's been a rise of medicine for the person or psychiatry for the person, which is essentially singular, essentially person-specific. And balancing 
those two virtues, the virtue of breadth and generality and the virtue of person specificity, is both an empirical challenge but also a conceptual challenge. So again, it's space for the philosophy and psychiatry to to interact. I, I just want to say two more things about that. One thing that I think is really interesting about the relationship between philosophy and psychiatry is, in a sense, the subject's youthfulness. So there was a a, a really interesting conference in Oxford uh, a few years ago, and I was delighted on the one hand that philosophy and psychiatry was going on in Oxford. That seemed to be a subject growing up. And yet a little bit of me, the the teenager in me, thought, maybe this is the beginning of the end. Maybe now is the time that we set up some questions, some puzzles that are fixed in the syllabus in the way that the philosophy of mind has its fixed in the syllabus puzzles and questions. And I was reminded of a comment that was made to me, I'm sure not seriously, by a a philosopher of mathematics. I don't think this is true of philosophy of mathematics, but he, he told me this as a warning. He said, if a mathematician were to go to a philosophy of mathematics conference, they would say, Why are all these philosophers discussing mathematics that we stopped discussing in the 1930s? Now, I don't believe that for a moment, but it's a standing danger for an academic subject, in this case, philosophy of psychiatry, say. At the point point that we become too successful, there's a danger that the, the subject seals itself off from fresh input, from clinical need and practice. So there's a, there's a worry. That's, the, that's a worry that I, I, I'd like to, to flag. And I think at the moment, that's something for which we're not guilty. There is a genuine interaction. Fresh problems coming out of psychiatry are grist for the mill of a philosophical inquiry. But there are a couple of real challenges, and I, I, I just want to flag these for, for, for future work in, in the subject area. One is that the, the, the international network is called an international network. And yet the voices that are predominantly heard are British voices, American voices, and voices from continental Europe in the phenomenological tradition. Now, that's great in one sense. Having continental philosophers and analytic philosophers talking one to another is just huge in some subject areas within philosophy. But it's only covering a small, a small area of the total clientele of mental health care across the world. So one of the real challenges is, how is it possible to have a genuinely international view of mental illness, mental health care, mental health? And then the other thing which I want to mention, and it's, it's clear from the, the fourth line down in this slide, I say that there's a two-way traffic between philosophy and psychiatry because there are philosophers and clinicians both doing, doing the work. And the group that's obviously missing there is the mental health service user community or communities. So one of the big challenges for this as a conceptual area is to bring on board the people for whom mental health and illness is, in a sense, most critical, the service user community or communities. And that's a challenge that we haven't really addressed and we're just beginning to address it. That said... It seems that we really are living in interesting times. A hundred years after Karl Jaspers, finally, philosophy and psychiatry not only talking one to another, but almost getting quite familiar with the idea that this is a worthwhile undertaking. And so sessions such as today is, in a sense, merely one of many interactions in which genuine conceptual issues raised in the context of healthcare are being addressed by a mixed clientele, philosophers, clinicians, and also, hopefully, mental health service users. Thank you.
thanks very much. So um, I think we've sort of set the stage a little bit now with that introduction. And um, now Bonnie will uh, talk to us about a slightly more specific issue, namely in particular um, how the concept of autism has changed over time in relation to social developments. So I'm in a um, slightly unusual situation today, not only to be on a panel with such distinguished professors, but also because I'm not a philosopher or a psychiatrist, but rather a historian um, slash sociologist with an interest in the philosophy of psychiatry, um, a medical humanist, I sometimes call myself. So I imagine I come at these ideas from a slightly different perspective. Um, in fact, um, in most, if not all, of my work, I've been interested in the question of why it is that in particular historical periods or in particular social and cultural contexts, there are outbreaks or increases or sort of bursts in the diagnosis of particular psychiatric disorders and why are there also then decreases um, in the perception of these disorders. So, for example, there was a major increase in the diagnosis of hysteria in late 19th century Europe, yet this diagnosis almost disappeared by the middle of the 20th century. Um, there's been a huge increase in the diagnosis of depression in West, Western countries, um, particularly since the 1980s, and this hasn't declined. In the 60s and 70s, psychiatrists reported a rapid increase in the diagnosis of anorexia and eating disorders in young women, and there's subsequently been um, a second increase um, in these disorders in children, um, particularly in the UK and the USA. Um, so I'm interested in what drives these increases. Will we see declines in these disorders? Um, are these sort of epidemics of some kind um, or are they related to the change, changes in the perception of what is normal um, and how should we treat individuals given, diagnosed with these conditions given that they may be socially and culturally specific. Um, so one area that I've researched extensively is the history of autism, diagnosis and treatment. Um, as I'm sure that you're aware, autism is currently diagnosed frequently in children, young people today and also in adults that wasn't always the case, so in this brief introduction, um, I want to talk about the epidemiology of autism and what this can tell us about the perception and classification of mental disorder generally. So this is a graph showing figures given in epidemiological studies of autism from 1966 to 2006. Um, starting in 1966, Victor Lotter, research psychologist in Middlesex County Council, um, conducted the first ever epidemiological study of autism, finding a rate of 4.5 per 10,000, um, an extremely low figure, a very rare disorder. Um, in the late 1970s, Judith Gould and Lorna Wing published a study which claimed that actually 21 per 10,000 children had autism. Um, and in 2006, a major study conducted by Gillian Baird and others at the Institute of Psychiatry, um, finding that actually 116 per 10,000 children have autism. That's over one in 100 children with autism or autistic spectrum disorder. And this study is often quoted to confirm the contention that more resources need to be put towards studying um, this particular condition. It affects one in 100 school children. So you're bound to know someone with autism or whose child has autism. Um, now, some people think that these figures can be interpreted as representing an epidemic of autism. Um, if... Oh, so... Speaking, is that better? I'll speak closer to you. Um, so if we look at figures um, recently collected from the Department of Education, we see that out of all children given a statement of special educational need in England, the group constituting the largest number of children is this one, children with um, autistic spectrum disorder in light turquoise. But in 1975, 
there were just over 500 children officially registered with autism in England and Wales, and in 1970 there were exactly none. Um, it wasn't officially recognised at all, but now we see 44,355. So both in epidemiological studies and in legal classifications, we see an increase in this disorder. So how do we explain this increase? What social and cultural factors are driving our increased observance or recognition of this particular mental health problem amongst children? Or has there been what you may call an actual increase? Um, My own research has drawn attention to several factors which have driven this rise in autism diagnosis. The first concerns the closure of large-scale institutions like this one, previously designated for the care of children with what was then termed mental deficiency. Um, Here's a picture from a 1957 book um, with a... A, a caption, Award for Imbeciles in a Mental Deficiency Hospital. Um, now, that's not a statement or an institution that you would ever come across today, yet in 1957, descriptions like that and institutions like that contained the problem of severe mental illness in children in our society. In 1959, following the publication of the Percy Report, the Mental Health Act was passed which leads to the closure of these institutions and to also asylums. Now, in 1961, just after the closure of these institutions, a slightly um, unusual situation developed. The Ministry of Health wanted to find out how many children there were in the UK with psychiatric disorder, given that these children were now being integrated into society, and they needed to plan, perhaps, outpatient hospital services. So they wrote to all um, senior child psychiatrists across the country, and they came across quite a significant obstacle. No one knew how many children there were with psychiatric disorder, um, and in addition to that, no one knew how to classify um, psychiatric disorder in children. So there'd been a debate going on for quite a long time um, as to how you could tell the difference between amentia or a lack of mind and mental disorder in infants and children. Um, So suddenly those psychiatrists who were having that debate, um, they're propelled into action. There's a lot of discussion actually in Parliament at the time about this problem. So this slide shows um, the first attempts to carve up the key constituents of autism and childhood schizophrenia. So childhood schizophrenia and autism, at the time those terms were completely interchangeable, so sometimes they would say childhood psychosis. Um, And this uh, list of diagnostic points was drawn up by Mildred Creek and others, uh, other sort of senior child psychological professionals. Um, The term schizophrenia was drawn directly from adult psychiatry. Um, It had been developed in 1911 by Eugene Bloiler to describe severe psychopathology in adults. Um, And Bloiler had also coined the term autism to describe the detachment from reality which characterized the most severe cases of schizophrenia. And he took the word autism from Freud's autoerotism. He just removed the erot element. So in the 1960s, the nine points used to classify or identify childhood schizophrenia were first and foremost the gross and sustained impairment of emotional relationships with people, apparent unawareness of his own personal identity, pathological preoccupation with particular objects, sustained resistance to change in the environment, abnormal perceptual experience, acute, excessive, and seemingly illogical anxiety, speech may have been lost or never acquired, distortion in motility patterns, and a background of serious retardation in which islets of normal, near-normal, or exceptional intellectual function or skill may appear. Um, Now, on the right-hand side of the slide, you can see... um, 
the list of behaviours characteristic of autism which were drawn up by Victor Lotter to conduct the first epidemiological study of autism. So he developed questionnaires to teachers asking them to rate children according to these behaviours. And Creek had claimed that it was impossible to use purely behavioristic criteria to define autism, what she said um, when she drew up the nine points. Um, we are to, if we were to convey what we all felt to be the heart of the matter, namely the presence of an impaired capacity for human relationships, we can't um, you know, make this, uh, we can't divide this up just into behavioral characteristics. But when Lotta drew from Preek's nine points for his epidemiological study, he said, we must do this, we're, we're doing an epidemiological study. So um, he got rid of apparent unawareness of his own personal identity and subsumed it with these un other behavioural me measures. So, um, and the list of the behavioural measures you can see up here. So at the end of this rather bizarre or oh, strange exercise in epidemiology, you get, then get a situation in which one of the key classifications of mental illness, autism, which um, usually referred to a lack of contact with reality in adults, is then broken down into purely behavioural measures, and these measures are used to identify autism in children. So after the closure of mental deficiency institutions and asylums in the 1950s, there's a slow increase in the integration of these children into schools. That only happens fully in the 1970s when hospitals for the subnormal um, are closed down after the Education Act and the Chronically Sick and Disabled Persons Bill. Um, and you can see here that first... In the education system, there's an increase in children classed as subnormal, and then after 1970, you begin to see the classification autistic. Um, now, once these children are integrated into schools, teachers, other educational professionals begin to perceive more of the autistic behaviours that had been rated by Lotta and Creek um, and the diagnostic points. So there's a rise um, during this period um, after the closure of deficiency institutions, there's a rise um, in the number of educational psychologists employed in schools. There's a rise in the number of speech therapists employed in schools. Um, this just shows the rise until the 1970s. By the, 19, at the 1990s, there's around 2,000 um, educa educational psychologists employed in schools. So these... Um, psychological professionals, learning support assistants and others, um, they begin to see more of these autistic behaviours that are rated in the, in the um, classifications used in the first epidemiological study. And you begin to see, I've looked at sort of lots of medical records and also government records, you begin to see this phrase autistic, autistic behaviours, so children can be a little bit autistic or they can be on the spectrum without having full autism. And that's when the concept of high-functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome um, is introduced. Lorna Wing introduces the concept of Asperger's syndrome in 1981. Um, in the 1970s, Michael Rutter and Lorna Wing um, cl clarify the specific problems which autistic children have, and they um, argue that we no longer need 24 behavioral items. We can now um, uh, reduce this to a triad of impairments. Lorna Wing is one of the key um, individuals who, um, who in, uh, sort of imposes or introduces this idea of a triad of impairments. Um, and she claimed that organic brain damage was, was responsible for this unique triad of impairments that you would see in, in autistic individuals. Um, so, and this is a, um, 
just an image from the National Autistic Society to show that this triad is still um, used today. So first, the social and emotional impairments, language and communication impairments, and last, the impairments in the flexibility of thought or imagination. And along with this continued identification and isolation of the social communicative and imaginative problems which are said to characterize autism, there have developed increasing numbers of tests to identify and isolate the chief or most significant problems which cause children to develop this triad of impairments. Um, so in the field of psychology, building on the work of Rutter and Ring, um, new tests are developed now to measure the cognitive and social impairments associated with autism. So um, theory of mind test is perhaps the most frequently used, um, developed by Simon Baron-Cohen and others, weak central coherence, um, executive function tests by Ozanov. Um, and autistic children are said to lack these cognitive abilities. So this is, this is just an image of the, the theory of mind test or the sally test, which is used in, in many studies now of children, not only with autism, actually, but with other psychological disorders. So this is Sally, this is Anne. Sally has a ball and puts it into her basket. Sally goes out for a walk and takes the ball out of the basket and then puts the ball in the box. Sally comes back and wants to play with the ball. Where will she look? Um, and autistic children would usually respond that she looks in the, in, in, the, um, in the box because that's where the ball actually is, whether, whereas children with a theory of mind um, or neurotypical children would say she looks for it in the basket because that's where she thought that she had left it. So that's um, one of the sort of classic tests used today. Um, so the integration of mentally deficient or what were classed as mentally deficient children into schools, the increase in psychological professionals within schools, this has led to sort of new system in the measurement of social impairment. And this actually can be compared, I think, to um, intelligence tests developed in the first half of the 20th century, which were criticized for being overused then. But these tests for social ability now spread beyond just the theory of autism. So, for example, the theory of mind test, this has been used... Um, in studies by Rutter to look at children who've been severely um, deprived in early childhood. So they looked at, um, that was in a Romanian orphan study, and there have been quite a lot of those studies that have been conducted since then. And they talk now about quasi-autism, which um, the theory of mind tests will pick that up, quasi-autism rather than just autism. Now, um, there are, of course, many challenges that one can raise to how one rates social ability in children. Um, whether this is possible and the extent to which autism and related conditions can be described as mental illnesses per se um, and historical and social context can assist in answering these questions, I think. Thank you. I think um, there's a lot of really interesting questions that are being raised by what you just presented, but I think before we start addressing those, um, we should hear what Matthew has to say, and then we'll start the discussion. Thank you, Christina. Thanks for inviting me to talk this evening. Um, I haven't got a PowerPoint presentation, I'm afraid, so I'll... Um, maybe I'll just leave bonus if that's okay. Um, uh, I guess by background, I'm a clinical and academic psychiatrist, and I guess I've been working in the field of philosophy and psychiatry for about um, 10 or 12 years, alongside my sort of routine um, clinical work and scientific work, which has been mainly in the um, 
prodromal at-risk phase of psychosis. And the, the two worlds did clash quite recently with the DSM-4-5 revisions where this category of attenuated psychosis syndrome became one of the potential new um, categories of DSM-5. And uh, fortunately, something that's been um, kept to the appendix, actually, is one of the outcomes. I thought I'd start off with, there, with that, really, with the um, definition of mental illness as proposed by the, the DSM-5, which is due to come out um, shortly this month. And then... Um, a few, uh, I guess, um, a map, perhaps, of philosophical ways of thinking about mental illness. Um, so the DSM-5 definition of mental illness will be, I suppose I should say, if it's not published quite yet, is that um, it's a behavioural or psychological syndrome or pattern that reflects an underlying psychobiological dysfunction. So it tells you the kind of cause, apparently. Um, the consequence, sorry, consequences of which are clinically significant distress or disability that must not be merely uh, expectable response to common stresses and losses, a culturally sanctioned response to a particular event, or a result of social deviance or conflicts with society. Um, so that's what ZSM-5 tells us mental disorder is, and it's not hugely different from the, the, the DSM-4 um, definition. Um, several years ago, um, I was asked by the journal that, that, that Tim mentioned, PPP, Philosophy, Psychiatry and Psychology, to review um, ways of thinking about mental illness in the literature. Predominantly, as Tim said, papers by psychiatrists, philosophers and psychologists. And this is not a sort of systematic review, but my attempt to sort of chart the theoretical views that were there in the literature did seem to offer a few different suggestions that, that, were, that were apparent. Um, there's one that I personally find quite appealing, that a, a psychiatric classification should be pragmatic, um, has particular um, concerns and um, things it needs to achieve. Those things may be in conflict, it may not always be coherent, and it's very instrumental, possibly merging with a kind of social constructionist conception of, of mental disorder. Um, there was one that is more maybe a, um, a straw man that some people write about, so the, the late... Um, Bob Kendall, who is uh, a very eminent psychiatrist, was probably a, a very great philosopher, I think, uh, formerly professor of psychiatry at Edinburgh. Um, he called it eliminative mindless psychiatry. And I think taking the term from the philosopher's um, Paul Churchland, where he described a vision of psychiatry where any reference to um, psychology, mental states, would be um, abolished, and you would purely talk in the vocabulary of neuroscience. And in between is the one that perhaps... Um, as the one we, we kind of live in, or perhaps we, we think we live in, which is what I called at the time a biological realist or essentialist conception of, of mental disorder, um, which is one where we believe the taxonomy we have can be cashed out in discrete um, biological terms. So perhaps, you know, with Bonnie, you might want to say autism is due to theory of mind. This, in turn, is a function that's instantiated by these brain circuits would be a kind of move to make, and one that perhaps is um, typified in the approach called cognitive neuropsychiatry of um, Tony David and, and Peter Halligan, where they, they, they make this kind of step, really, that um, Baron Cohen and colleagues have done, um, where they take a psychopathological state, try and think about it in terms of a neuropsychological function, and then in turn try to think about that in terms of brain function. There's a very neat uh, mapping in those three, three levels. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's quite appealing. Um, but there's philosophical concerns about that, whether that's viable, whether there's um, things in mental life that cannot be simply mapped onto neural um, states such as that. Um, and a, a point that Kendall made in one of his papers discussing this view of, of mental disorder is that there's an assumption that all mental disorders are similar. 
that this strategy of reduction, or at least drawing parallel between different levels, is equally likely to be successful between uh, schizophrenia, autism, personality disorder, depression, etc. And why should we think that's, that's the case? Um, and Kendall calls this, this, this is the reification fallacy, the idea you can take this concept and make it into a, a clear-cut, distinct object for, study, for scientific study. And he thinks that's something that needs to be examined and questioned constantly. And we tried ourselves to, to do this a little bit. In that we, we, I was reading these papers and I thought, well, do psychiatrists all think the same? Do we all think disorders are equally amenable to scientific explanation? And we conducted a little mini-study of um, trainee psychiatrists at the Maudsley, about 70, 80-odd of, of them, and looking at their attitudes towards various mental disorders and their beliefs about those mental disorders. And we asked them to think about... Um, have I written it down? Oh, yes, um, schizophrenia, major depression, anxiety disorder antisocial personality disorder. And unsurprisingly, the psychiatrists had very different views depending on the disorder they were asked to think about. Um, so in some ways, Kendall was right. The clinicians, the academics, and these were researchers as well, had different views about the disorders. And I guess you would maybe expect the kind of results we found was that they tend to have quite a biological view of schizophrenia, a very cognitive conception of, of anxiety disorder, perhaps um, because of their training in, in CBT and a very social constructionist view of things like personality disorder. And these, these attitudes about etiology also tallied with their views about how one should do research in the topic and how one should treat these disorders. And interestingly, we found these three big um, axes of belief or attitude that, that uh, explained a lot of the variance of the trainees' views, where that um, a lot of the, uh, the, the psychiatrists had a sort of biology, non-biology split in their thinking. Some had a... Um, a uh, sort of biopsychosocial realist view as opposed to a social constructionist view. And lastly, there's a very interesting uh, dimension we found in the study where there was a kind of um, a, a, a non-biological dimension <coughs> of thinking that was psychoanalytic versus non-psychoanalytic. So there were those who didn't think biologically at all, but within that group, some of them thought in a kind of Freudian way, some of them thought in an idea about social realism or social construction or, or spiritualism views. So, so that kind of led us to think that maybe um, uh, there's no reason that the uh, paradigm of this biological realism is valid for all disorders. Certainly there's no, there's no reason to believe that psychiatrists view um, all disorders the same based on that view. And I began thinking about what would be another way of um, thinking about um, uh, psychiatric disorders. And, I, and this is work with my colleague Lisa Bortolotti, um, we just thought it would be quite simple and think of, is there a way of making mental disorders mental and making it sensible, um, rather than sort of committing ourselves to any kind of dualistic or um, sort of Cartesian view, but trying to think about what is it is about mental illness that is important to us as clinicians and, and patients, and what it is that's uh, the, the value of thinking in mental terms rather than neuroscientific terms. And that's some of the work um, we carried out. Um, so the first thought was really, um, I think Tim alluded to this, why, um, why do we have to make psychiatry like the rest of medicine? Why shouldn't medicine encapsulate psychiatry within it? So it's a kind of broadening, first thing is, is why should we be constrained to a reductive biomedical model of psychiatry is, is, is the one thought. Why can't we explain the notion of disorder to contain uh, mental disorder that's not necessarily physical? So that's the one thing. Why do we have to be constrained and limited? And secondly, 
um, why can't we go back to the other ways of thinking about validating disorders in, non- in non-biological terms? So, for example, I think we mentioned... Um, I think you mentioned cre- from crippling, for example, validated uh, dementia precox, or for schizophrenia, and manic depression by a clinical course. So we used a prognostic way of validating the disorder rather than a biological conception of the disorder. And leading from that, we, we, we became aware that, or certainly it's clear, that the psychopathological terms we use and the um, disorders uh, and their criteria and their classifications use psychological terms, all of which um, are based upon uh, ideas of deviations of, of norms, such as ethical norms, epistemic norms, so ideas about knowledge, and social norms. And in the work with Lisa, we've mainly focused on, on things about delusions and epistemic norms. I mentioned some of the work of a, a colleague as, as well briefly. Um, and the point being here is, is, is very simple, and one that I guess Bill Fulford has, has brought out as well, is that although scientifically we might know that um, an abnormal brain scan or a genetic polymorphism or a um, change in dopamine quantize might be linked with the disorder, those biological variables are not disordered in and of themselves. They're only disordered with reference to the person who's disordered. And to find him or her disordered relies on you being able to use psychological terms correctly. So the point is, however good our science gets, you can't quite... The brute science won't give you the abnormality bit. They'll tell you about their science, but not the, where the disorder comes in. And that's something, as I say, we, 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 we've explored a bit with delusions. So neurobiology can explain why a certain disorder occurred and how best we should treat it and make, obviously, important connections between disorder and other aspects of functioning, but it cannot be an exhaustive and exclusive explanation of the reason why we observe the deviation from normal functioning as pathological. And that's a question, I guess, where social science is very, is very, has a powerful place to, 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 to have a voice. And say so the example is, is delusion. So I, um, when I was writing this paper, papers with Lisa, I looked at some work by a colleague of mine, Daniel Freeman, a professor of psychology at Oxford, and Dan's done a lot of work in um, CBT of psychosis, of understanding paranoia in the general population. And, you know, the, the delusion is a, is, a, is a woolly term, but, you know, there's, there's certain features about delusion that we tend to think about, and these would include um, things like implausibility, conviction, being unfounded, being distressing, causing preoccupation and not being shared, all of which are quite complex, normatively, psychologically derived terms, not amenable easily to a reduction. Um, so as I say, that's, the, that's the, a lot of the work I've been doing with Dr. Portlotti has been around, um, around uh, delusions. But my colleague, um, Hannah Picard, who's a um, philosopher and group therapist in Oxford, has, I guess, done... I'm not speaking out of terms, so you disagree with me, but done some similar work looking at personality disorder. Um, and Hannah wrote a provocative paper um, um, for a, a book I edited on um, something like the myth of mental illness, echoing the, the SAS term. And her view was that personality disorder was not a medical illness in a narrow biomedical defined sense, but a disorder of... Um, well, I'll, I'll quote. So Picard says, patients often seem to lack the virtues of, for instance, temperance and moderation, fairness and generosity to others, humility, trust, patience, and love and respect for others. So she goes on to say, our cluster B PDs, which is the kind of emotionally unstable group, medical conditions, despite the fact they involve failures of virtue and character, there is good reason to to hold that PDs are properly treated in contemporary multidisciplinary mental health clinics involving psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychotherapists of various bends, at least in this respect, their medical conditions. So I guess what Hannah 
I kind of think does there is, is, is try to make a split. You can still have something that's amenable to medical intervention, but is not biomedical in terms of its reduction. And I think that's an important way to think about psychiatry. We shouldn't be limited to the constraints of a narrow conception of medicine. We should be enriching medicine with a broader conception of disorder and, 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 and health. Um, so I think I will pretty much leave it there. Um, but I guess just to, just, to, just to just reiterate the sort of main point is that we would suggest in our attempts to define mental disorders as mental is that you need mental and psychological vocabulary to describe what makes behaviours typical of these conditions pathological. This is not by any means a, an anti-science point at all, but more to be for us to keep in mind what it is that's uh, important and interesting in these disorders for us. And I'll end with a quote from... Um, Aubrey Lewis, it's now, um, how old is this, 20, 30-odd years old. So this is um, Lewis writing on the um, ICD-8 when it was published. He says, The current classification is a hodgepodge of classifications by cause, pathology, course, and clinical pattern. It is an empirical utilitarian scheme such as Hewlings-Jackson, famous neurologist not far from here, contrasted with a scientific one. It was, and to some extent still is, influenced by a somatic paradigm. It flies in the face of taxonomic restitude, but persists for lack of anything better which would be generally acceptable. I think the same pragmatic view of the DSM-5 is well, maybe we should, we should accept. Thank you for your time and attention. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, I think a lot of different issues came up. Um, I want to leave a lot of time for discussion with the audience, so I, I think I'll just confine myself to asking maybe a couple of general questions um, addressed on all three of you that I think all, all three presentations somehow touched on. So I think one, one thing that became obvious in your three presentations was that they are really, um, when we talk about the classification of mental disorders, there's, there's really different factors that play a role here. And I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about how you see the relationship between these, whether you see them to be in tension or whether you see them to be um, somehow mutually complementary or something like that. So, so on the one hand, we have, for example, so Bonnie um, emphasized that when you shift to evidence-based medicine, epidemiological studies, you rely a lot on, be on behavioral criteria, right? But then one criticism of that might be that, well, if you do that, you might risk lumping together um, different phenomena, actually, that might express themselves similarly behaviorally, but that have underlying rather different psych um, physiological causes, as it were. And so it's important to also take into account those physiological causes. On the other hand, um, Matthew made a very strong case um, for, I think, what you call mental realism. So we also need this normative psychological vocabulary. We can't just reduce mental disorders to neurobiology. Um, so I wondered whether you could maybe all three of you say a little bit more about what you think of the relationship between these different things. I mean, should we think of them in terms of different levels of explanation or how would you, how would you think they sort of fit together, if at all? Do you want to go first? Um, oh. <laughs> I think there's no reason why you have to be constrained within one classificatory system. I, I, I would personally suggests is, is the first thought to have. Another, another, um, another paper by uh, Bill Fulford, actually, um, he managed to get hold of the transcripts of a WHO meeting where Lewis was present and talked about the classification of psychiatry, in psychiatry. And there were comments there about a public and a private classification system. 
Indeed, in research, we, we use other classifications sometimes. You might use an overarching DSM or, or ICD classification, but we might also use um, a research-specific um, classification. So, for example, in my area, people talk about narrow and broad and spectrum schizophrenia. We talk about refractory schizophrenia and prodromal psychosis, etc. Um, so there's different classifications you may wish to use, and you, you're perfectly free to use a biological classification. And certainly, you know, there's this debate just in the last few days with the NIMH um, arguing against the acceptance of the um, DSM-5, wanting to have a, 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 a classification more closely linked to um, neuroscience. Um, so I guess don't be too worried about being incoherent. It's my view. It's a cognitive thought. Sometimes the world is messy, unclear, and you have to use... Again, it's back to my pragmatic temptation. You have to use a classification that suits your purpose. As I mentioned to you before, Christine, I mean, in, in my real life, I use ICD-10 for clinical practice, DSM-4 for academic work. I have to remember what the differences are and what the, what the goals are. And in other ways, I might be using these very specific research criteria. Very hard messages to get across to patients, and that's, that's the difficulty. Right. But still, from a, I mean, I guess I'm picking up on something that Tim said earlier. Um, from a philosophical point of view, um, so you mentioned Jaspers, right? And Jaspers made, made this distinction between explaining something, which is maybe more along the lines of the scientific approach, and understanding something, which he took to be something rather different. So do you think that distinction is still valid and that that's maybe what's reflecting these different approaches as well? Uh, I'm not sure that... I think there are a couple of things which are sort of in, in tension here. So, so one thought is the, the history of why psychiatric taxonomy is as behavioristic and operationalized as it currently is. And, and Matthew can tell the story better than me, but it's one of the factors for that is that after the Second World War, it was discovered that British and American psychiatrists diagnosing schizophrenia uh, diagnosed it in entirely different ways for a given patient body. And so the, the, the worry was that, that these judgments lacked what, what they describe as, uh, as reliability, uh, inter-rater reliability. Get two people making the same diagnostic judgment, will they make the same one? Lacking inter-rater reliability uh, was obviously a bad thing, and hence one way of solving that problem was to say, well, we will make psychiatric uh, uh, diagnosis, we will purge it of as much etiological or causal theory as we can and just describe the behavior. And we'll do that in a way, in such a way that epidemiology becomes possible for people without much by way of medical training. So there's a sort of interesting way in which the, the science has generated an operationalized approach. And there was a thought when, when DSM-5, the, 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 the ahead this hour, as it were, let's just shortly to come out, new diagnostic system. There, there was a promise when that came out that it would put the emphasis on reliability to some extent, uh, in the shade. And it would concentrate instead on validity, on the idea of carving the world at its joints. And the emphasis was going to be on developing biological science. It just seems that in the years that people have been working on DSM-5, the optimism that that would be possible has really fallen away. And it does look as though DSM-5 is going to be much more like DSM-4 than people thought it was going to be. So there's a, there's a story there about reliability versus validity, trying to get something which is, de which is describing the surface of behaviour and people can agree on it, or trying to describe what's going on in an underlying way. That, that seems to me to be one sort of area of debate. And then there's another one, which is the sort of Jasperian thought, which is the, the real pessimism about the idea of criteriological diagnosis at all. 
that very often mental health service users, uh, by no means, always, I hasten to add, but, but often they resent having a diagnosis because a diagnosis seems to be a crude uh, a cons- uh, uh, slipping one into a, into a box or to, or to a, a, a cubbyhole. Uh, dis- it disguises differences. And so there is a, another thought, and certainly the World Psychiatric Association are very keen on this idea, that we should have something which is, which is person-specific, which is aimed at the person, something like a diagnostic formulation, a piece of prose, a description which tries to capture a patient in their individuality. My worry, of course, is that e- even if that does come about, even if psychiatrists were to, to do this, they would then end up with a diagnosis which had on the one hand as Jennifer Aniston has taught us to say, the the science bit, that would be the criteriological thing, and then there would be the cuddly narrative, and I just wonder which one will get used. So I'm I'm, I'm worried about this as as a quick fix. But it seems to me that those are two different sorts of tensions. One is reliability versus validity within psychiatric science, and the other is recognizing individuality when it comes especially to mental health service users. It's a tricky one. Right. Yeah, maybe Matthew can add a bit to that as well from the clinical perspective. But first I wanted to ask, um, Bonnie, so based on your presentation, I mean, what do you think that these social factors that you pointed out really tell us about um, mental disorders? I mean, do you think that mental disorders are ultimately a social construct based on your research, or how do you Um, see psychiatry? I definitely wouldn't um, describe it in those terms or say that mental disorder is purely a social construct, but I would definitely argue that um, social changes have a huge impact on the way in which categories are defined. Just in relation to the points that you were making, um, sorry, just in relation to the points that you were making, apparently I don't speak (laughs) loud enough, but um, in relation to the points that were being made here, um, I found something quite interesting in my research. What I found was quite interesting in that the behavioral characteristics um, and the growth of epidemiological studies actually had a huge impact on the definition of the category that was being defined. So autism prior to the rise of epidemiological studies um, is described as um, very much in terms of hallucination, loss of contact with reality, linked to um, Bloiler and Freud and its um, early sort of child psychological researchers such as Susan Isaacs and Melanie Klein use this kind of language when they're describing autism. But then when you have the growth of epidemiological studies, um, this idea that autistic children are somehow hallucinating, reverting into some fantastical world, this um, is completely transformed and into the idea that um, autistic children have no sort of no hallucinations or no fan- fantasy life at all, and now autism is very much associated with logical thinking, um, and it's it's actually the the um, measures that are being applied which have changed the meaning of that of that category. Um, and I, I I don't know whether there are any other um, examples in which that that has been the has been the case, but it's definitely it's definitely the case with autism, um, and. In the DSM um, three, where um, autism was first introduced as a pervasive developmental disorder, um, when it is introduced as a pervasive developmental disorder in children, actually the category of autism is removed from adult schizophrenia, so it's no longer within the DSM as an aspect of adult schizophrenia, and autism becomes sort of separated out in its own um, unique um, 
um, form, and I think that is to do with these social changes. And so, um, and those social changes are much broader than just the, the cate- um, uh, changes in the categories. But I think that um, that's that's one way in which it, yeah, it has an impact. But I, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't say disorders are purely socially constructed. It's that they are um, partly. You, I think you also suggested in, in that paper that you wrote on that topic that um, the meaning, the change in the meaning of the term autism doesn't just reflect a change in the way we think about autism as a mental disorder or illness, but also actually reflects um, more general perceptions of infant thought and cognition. So I was wondering whether the three of you might want to comment on that, how in the way, the way in which we maybe change our conceptions of certain mental disorders at the same time reflects on the way we conceive mm. of normal cognition, if there is such a thing at all. In the one area that's, I guess, similar, where perhaps you, you delineate normal child development by reference to pathology, is, I guess, the manic depression in childhood that's um, one of my colleagues' works on in, in, in London, um, where um, severe mood dysregulation in children has been seen to be a, a satellite or part of a bipolar syndrome, receiving medication in very young children. Which to a lot of us, seeing a small child who has emotional changes seems to be almost inherent to the notion of childhood. <laughs> so it seems a bit peculiar. But as Ronnie was saying, as soon as you begin to operationalise it, have measures and, and questionnaires, you begin having papers quoting the epidemiology of it, conducting clinical trials, and Kendall's verification happens. You have a scientific object of study. Um, this is a bit outside of my own area, but certainly, yeah, my colleague, I'm thinking of a, a colleague called Aguirre Strigaris, works in this area, and he was very concerned about... Um, what you meant by severe mood dysregulation in children as a, as, a, as a marker for childhood bipolar. But again, the point is it, it, it makes you, it alters your conception of thinking about normal child development. I'm going to mention the reliability thing that Tim mentioned about schizophrenia. I mean, the other thing that people do say is that, um, as Tim quite rightly said, because this concern, this embarrassment about problems in reliability of diagnosis did lead to people trying to make our diagnostic practice more reliable. And in doing so, they tended to focus on um, the very um, prominent uh, psychotic symptoms of, of schizophrenia, such as um, um, uh, thought broadcasting, thought insertion, passivity, etc., which are very easy to elicit and detect through a psychiatrist. And the danger is our disorder has become semi-defined by those things. Um, and the question is, people do say occasionally we've got a reliable construct is it the same thing as Kreplin and Broil have talked about and is it also a disorder that just happens to be one that might be amenable to certain kinds of treatment than others and we neglect other parts of um, the the syndrome and here's a worry that's been echoed by um, the psychiatrist Nancy Andreasen who was an author I think of DSM-3 who who felt one of the dangers of the classifications is that um, we forgot to listen to the whole quantitative experience just focused on the symptoms in in the big books so we just tick off schizophrenia as a list of symptoms and forget to think about the more subtle abnormalities that, that may be present. We think we know what people are going to be telling us in advance. And she certainly claims in North, in North America there's, a, there's a, um, a lack of training in psychopathology. There's a, you seem to, uh, uh, speaking as, a, as, a, as a, a philosopher outside of it, there seems to be in mainland continental Europe, European psychiatry uh, a thought that the operationalisation that's happened, especially in Britain and America, uh, has undermined the way in which particular symptoms are reliable... Sorry, I don't mean the word reliable in the way I've just been using it. Are are helpful indicators, are trustworthy indicators in a particular context. 
So there is hearing, vo hearing voices might be used as a diagnostic test of schizophrenia as, as, as part of the story. But, but only the right sort of hearing voices are an interesting indication that this is, this is, this is somebody suffering from schizophrenia. So the, the sort of the more phenomenological tradition wants to emphasize a kind of holism of the way in which individuals' experiences are, are tied together. And it's, that seems to me to be a really interesting point, that there's something almost tacit that's lurking behind a skillful clinician's picking out of symptoms, which may not be written down in the DSM or the ICD. It also opens up the way for, go, for, for, for doing a, a, another stage, another step forward, which is if in addition to thinking that symptoms are significant in particular holes, it raises the interesting question of if there are illnesses such as schizophrenia, if schizophrenia really exists as an entity, where should we look for the organisational principle? And we, one temptation is to look for it at the level of biology. But the interesting work by, uh, Matthew will know all about this, but Joseph Parnas at the Centre for Subjectivity in Copenhagen is pushing the idea that, that schizophrenia is an illness of, of an ipsaity disorder. It's a, it's a disruption of one's sense of self. The idea being to try to tie together the kinds of experiences that one might then uh, undergo as having a kind of comprehensible whole following from that. Now, there may well be a biological story to be told later, but the, the first step of the analysis is to try to paint a more integrated and holistic picture of the symptoms, in a sense, in opposition to the spirit of the operationalization that, that has dominated psychiatric taxonomy. So I think it's a really interesting thing that may or may not come to pass. It'll be interesting to see how, how the psychiatric mainstream adopts Parnas's suggestions. I think um, we should open up the discussion now because I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions in the audience. Do we have some microphones? Um, do we have one downstairs as well? Okay, right, so there's a question here and then on the other side. Oh, is that a, yeah. Thank, thank you very much. My, my question is to, uh, to Tim Thornton but also to the others and that is uh, to what extent uh, do you think that psychiatry does deal with illnesses? I'm thinking, for instance, the contrast, I don't know if you've come across the Oliver Sacks book, The Island of the Colorblind. Now, you can have a society, one of the characteristics that one finds in, a, in that sort of society where there's a very high incidence of colorblindness is that you can imagine a perfectly coherent society in which virtually everybody is colorblind. I don't think you can say the same about some, but possibly not all. So, so I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on psychiatry and illness. Okay, thank, thank you very much. I, I may fail to answer your question, but let, let, me, let me amble in its direction. If, if that's okay. Uh, well, well, as, soon as, you, as soon as you set the question up, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the interesting question of uh, the deaf community, deaf with a capital D, uh, who say deafness isn't uh, a pathology, it's not a disability, deafness is an identity. This is just another way of being human. This is just another form of human subjectivity. And that seems to me to be a really interesting... It raises a really interesting question, which is, who is to say what's pathological? Who is to say what, what's, a, what's a pathology? Uh, Matthew earlier alluded in, in his own thinking on this. He mentioned, he mentioned distress as, as, uh, 
uh, as something which is in the, DS, in the DSM and might be one of the ways in which one begins to try and gather together what, what illnesses have in common. And the interesting thing about the deaf community is they're not distressed. So if, 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 if pathology, and death, uh, pathology and distress go together, then that's going to raise interesting questions. Let me say one other thing on this. One might say... It doesn't really matter whether people are distressed or not. One might say that's not really, that's not really, it will go a long way towards understanding what disorder is if we take a kind of biological view and we say, well, we are products of, of evolution. Uh, we have biological systems and traits which, ser- which have functions. And when they fail to serve those functions, when they are dysfunctional in accordance with our best account from evolutionary theory, then we're on the way to disorder. There may be something else with it, but that's, that's, that's a move towards it. Now, if you press that point, then the fact that the deaf community are quite happy to say this is an identity uh, is not the end of the matter. And so you then end up with a really interesting dispute at one level up. Who is going to define illness? Is the right answer to defining illness something like uh, an investigation of whether it's something like biological dysfunction or not? Or do we just say, no, no, when it comes to thinking about illnesses, the way we should think about illnesses is pragmatic, and it has to do with, with who's distressed. And I don't know how to answer that question. That seems to be a fundamental matter for, for negotiation. But in the way that people in the Hearing Voices uh, movement say that Attitudes to hearing voices are a bit like attitudes to homosexuality, but just 50 years uh, away, as it were. Then, then there we get a real interaction. It'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. I don't think there's a neat way of answering the conceptual question. And so I sort of wonder whether it's a matter of politics rather than analysis. Do one of the others want to comment on that question as well? Um, I know that definitely within the autistic community there are people who um, do not claim that their problems that they have symptoms of a disorder and there's a place now in the United States called Autreat where people can go and act autistic and it's not considered um, to be a disorder Um, and often um, these sort of groups people define themselves now as Aspies and on the internet there are lots of communities of people claiming that this is not Um, a psychiatric disorder and often they clash with particularly parent groups who are really um, acting uh, from the opposite side saying that we must investigate this as a disorder, we must do more genetic studies into this condition, we must look at this as as a real problem so um, there can be um, many different perspectives I think within um, one disorder even, even one disorder as to whether or not that is and how that is a problem Right, so how do you deal with that? As a clinician, um, well, usually it's it's bizarre. It's not problematic in clinical life. And I deal with a lot of people who, who who come to me usually have a psychotic disorder, and some of them will take up the uh, identity of being a voice hearer. And and one of the I think the myths about psychiatry is that we're interested in what people think and what people believe and what people experience. By and large, we're not really. We're interested in, um, <laughs> in um, suffering, distress, mortality, and risk. And those are things we focus on. So if people will hear a voice that's non-distressing and life-enhancing. I think that's a wonderful outcome. And quite often, that will be the, that will be the clinical gain. The voice will have changed in its emotional tone, its frequency, its degree of preoccupation. The patient may have had a, a bit of medicine for several months. You have to stop medicine. You have to go back to sixth form or university. 
uh, it's not for me to um, obliterate experiences. Um, so I think some of these discussions are a bit orthogonal. Um, I'm merely concerned about the person who's in front of me who's you know, got something that's distressing and alarming to them. Because some of these experiences are very frightening, and that's a slight danger to the hearing voice movement. It tends to um, emasculate the reality of acute psychosis. And certainly when I've asked people in the movement, so what happens if you have a patient who's hearing a voice telling them to kill their child? It's quite hard to get a response sometimes, and that's the clinical reality. So we see people, admittedly, I mean, Tim mentioned coercion, but there's usually a very real reason why a given patient's in front of us. Um, it's not usually problematic. And certainly we're more than happy to remove diagnostic labels and remove treatment when, when, when we can. Yeah. Right. Okay, so um, I think I saw a question there, right? Can, can we get the microphone to that side? And then, and then here. Yeah, you're next. Um, back there, can you raise the hand again, please? Thank you very much. That was an interesting conversation. Um, I wanted to pick up on the resentment to um, have be, being diagnosed with a mental illness. Um, is this a lack of understanding of the public at large to what actually is mental illness and, and, and what, our, what, what, what it looks like? And will having the third voice of, of, of the service user that Tim mentioned at the beginning make it a better conversation that actually works? And what will this voice look like in the role and how will it be developed? Just can I flag my own, my own uh, uh, awareness of the, the difficulty? I, I don't think we've really worked that one out. I don't think we've worked out how service user voices uh, can play an authentic role in deliberating about uh, concepts of disorder, uh, how, how best to uh, uh, examine stigma, and, and so on. I mean, there are some, some beginnings of ways. So, so I go to conferences where there are quite a lot of service user narratives, and those are really helpful in presenting a very vivid picture of one person's experiences, uh, the experiences which may, be, which, which may involve distress in the face of a mental illness and may also involve distress in the face of psychiatric services. And I, and I think we learn something from that. The, the difficulty is to learn more than just the one instance. So it's, in a sense, that, that it is, it's the perennial problem that how do you generalise from individual instances without falling prey to, again, a kind of pigeonholing, cubbyholing, a difficulty of conceptualising under, under crude concepts. It's a work in progress. I think it's really difficult to know how best to do it. Right. Um, unless there's comments on that. I mean, all I'll just say, I think some of the confusion is not just in the general public. I think in, in clinicians and, and academics is there as well. I mean, certainly I, I, I make a diagnosis, as I understand it, in ICT-10 on DSM-4, and my colleagues will, will think I'm saying something about biology. And I'm trying to make a very thin statement. I'm just saying this person meets these criteria in this classification, and they want me to make a judgment about genetics or neurochemistry. Um, so even colleagues can, can want you to say a bit more than you mean to say. I suppose. Okay, there's a question. Can you uh, hold on until you get the microphone? Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's, what I, that's what I thought. Thank you. Um, mind, body, spirit is about the whole person. Okay, that's what I'm missing from this debate. You know, the whole mind, body, spirit piece. Um, Robert Holden, The Happiness Project, his new book is all about lovability. Um, you mentioned the pain-pleasure principle. I think once somebody does, say, like mindfulness or kindness or those kind of practices, then often they've solved a lot of their problems, you know, growth and contribution, as, as they say. Now, now, my question is about the NHS IAP program. That is committed to, because of all the research, 
cognitive behavioural therapy. So the NHS are behind CBT. They've committed to that. Now, I know a lot of people in the personal development world that um, practice phobia cures. So there's sort of Milton Erickson, the hypnosis school. And that neuro-linguistic programming and neuro-associative conditioning is actually, in my experience, having better results. I work with people who um, have criminality as mental health and, and, and the, the criminal justice system. Um, so why is it that people um, of your calibre are not behind NLP? That, that I guess, is, in a nutshell, my, my question. Um, I mean, I guess I'll just, I'll just be honest and say I don't, I don't know too much about it. Certainly, uh, somebody who's been through sort of fairly standard training of an English medical school and through postgraduate psychiatry training, it was never part of the curricula or, or the training courses I've been on. So, ignorance is the one reason. Um, I'm certainly I'm trying to think if I'm aware of it being used in the NHS. I can't say I've experienced it. As you're right, CBT is, is um, everywhere, um, and people have concerns about that. In my clinical practice... Um, IAPT and my clinical work don't interface because IAPT is quite... Um, I'm going to say silo, that's not the right word. Patients who are a little bit complex will not meet criteria. So if you have the kind of person who I might see who might have psychotic experiences, drug misuse, self-harm, would be um, a bit too much for IAPT. So you really have a very, um, an anxiety disorder, a mild depression, etc. Um, yeah... Um, Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, certainly one of my own little bugbears is that we should have more family therapy in, in schizophrenia practice. I mean, that's something I think we do, we do, we do lack, that, uh, an evidence-based treatment that you know, has been described for 30, 40 years and seems to work um, is quite hard to get hold of in the NHS. So I think the more general point, there may be psychological interventions we don't use optimally, I think is, is a valid one. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, is there a question up there that I'm missing? Okay, let's go upstairs. Hello, a couple of you mentioned about being quite pragmatic with all these different perspectives on mental uh, disorder. And I was just wondering how much you thought that the treatment options, whether psychopharmacology, CBT, or social interventions, um, feature in whether you... Consider, di- consider giving a diagnosis as a clinician or considering diagnosis. I work in a homeless mental health team and we see many people who've been not identified as having a mental illness earlier in their crises and then five years later on, on the streets completely isolated. And often the questions around stigma and being given a diagnosis are often used as a way to withhold services earlier on before a lot of damage is done. So I'm just interested in, in the role of what interventions are available and kind of rationing services with regard to diagnoses. And the, this also impacts on research populations who are the ones who are already in the system and not people identified throughout society who may be suffering quite significantly but not thresholds for services. You could try. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose, again, it's one of the slight myths of, of psychiatry is I think that we, we can adopt a fairly ideographic formulation approach. 
So I certainly, the way the NHS currently is, I have the flexibility to construct a kind of bespoke package of interventions for a given individual. And, I mean, the danger, as Tim sort of said, is how you relate the individual formulation to the um, RCT data and the evidence base and nice guidelines. And that's the kind of the bit that um, um, Nancy Cartwright wrote about, a former professor of LSE, about how, how one takes RCT data to apply to an individual. Um, so we have, I think we're still quite fortunate in the NHS. Um, colleagues in, in, the, in the US, you know, your treatment is defined by your diagnosis. So the DSM-5 is much more... Uh, clinically constraining, much more important, important there. And also, I believe, the way they practice psychiatry has changed as well. Again, people might know about, more about this than I do, that because um, to earn money for the hospital, they have to do brief consultations, and the only thing you can do in a brief consultation is medication change. Whereas I still have the luxury, and I think it is luxury, I can spend 40 minutes, an hour with a patient, and on one level, do nothing, no, make no medicine changes, or, or, but, but hopefully help them explore their experiences and, and you know, gain some therapeutic engagement. But I think those kind of therapeutic encounters are closed off to some colleagues in a more regulated system. Um, we do have this payment by results coming into the NHS. Not so many people have heard of that, but we do have to cluster every patient, and each cluster comes with a package of interventions. So in my work, every cluster 10, which is early psychosis, and we have to say what early psychosis gets, which probably will be antipsychotics, CBT, I imagine, case management. Um, so we're moving a bit to that tightness between diagnosis and treatment. So your worries are justified, I think. Could, could I just add one thing to which is to ad- advertise the work of a, uh, a colleague of mine up in the north of England at the University, in this case of, of Lancaster, Rachel Cooper, who's a, a philosopher of psychiatry. Uh, she went through the, the program, um, the History and Philosophy of Science program at Cambridge, which is supposed to teach you an ability which it failed to teach me, uh, which is to uh, tailor one's philosophical analysis to historical evidence and data that, that, that's there. And she did some really interesting work in the archives of the American Psychiatric Association looking at the development of psychiatric categories in the light of constraints such as what pharmacology was available and what insurance companies were prepared to pay for. Uh, and this produced a, a story which, which looks a long way away from a naive, positivistic view of what science does. It, it, a really complicated and elaborate feedback loop of there are conditions where there is treatment. So in, in a sense, I think part of, a, part of an answer here would be to look at the complicated evolution of psychiatric diagnoses partly in response to treatments becoming on the market and being marketed for particular puzzle problems. Sorry. Can I just add to that a little bit? Um, I was just going to say that in um, the context of children, it's actually very different in, in terms of the way that diagnoses are applied. So parents actually have quite a significant impact on which children become diagnosed. Also, um, educational psychologists working in schools and, and um, you know, these things are picked up in quite a different way. And um, in terms of treatment um, for autism, at least the um, treatment plans are mainly educational. And autism has only really arisen in the context of education. So it, it's quite different to other psychiatric disorders in that in that sense, um, or has only grown up in the context of education. Um, whereas something like depression, I think people have linked the increase in depression to um, increase in the prescri- availability of drugs to treat that particular disorder. Um, so that, that's something that I just wanted to add. Mm. Right. Um, yes, there was a question there. Uh, behind. Sorry. I'm trying to follow the order. Oh. 
Uh, thank you. It seems to me that a lot of the uh, discussion of disorder, the nature of disorder, how to classify it, um, depends on this idea or is connected with the idea that it's bad to have a disorder. And so if people say, well, you know, um, deafness is not really a disorder because you flourish in the deaf community if, you, if you're deaf, you, well, that's fine, you use not a disorder. Or I've also heard it said that colour blindness may be, in some circumstances, an advantage because colour blind people can make certain colour distinctions in, say, if they're entomologists looking at beetles that normal people can't make, and so on and so forth. And Bill Fulford likes an example of somebody who regularly hears the voice of God but is a respected figure in his community because everybody takes him to be a prophet and a seer and they go to him for words of advice. That's fine, that, that could all be true. Um, in the same way, somebody who's physically ill might be an advantage because he can get a sick note. So there might be all sorts of ways in which uh, disorders might, can work to your advantage. But there's this intuition I've got that there's still something different about people with disorders. It's, of course, true that we can't always classify them. There's a real question that you all put your finger on about whether these point to natural kinds, whether there's a natural difference between somebody with a narcissistic disorder and somebody with a histrionic disorder, and how do we precisely determine which is which. It does sound silly to think we could be that precise, but there's still something different, and maybe the idea comes down to something to do with capacity. So if you look at the debate going on nowadays about whether addiction is a disease or not, um, some people ferociously think it is because it's to do with the brain. They think that clinches the issue, is it a disease. Other people say, no, it's nonsense. I mean, everything, every mental occurrence is, is to do with the brain. It doesn't, this doesn't pick out addictions. When we say somebody can't resist his urges, we mean some, sometimes people mean literally they can't. They can't not drink. They can't take drugs. Whereas most people can't not take drugs. I just wonder whether something like that might be in the right direction. Don't mind. Uh, I, I mean, I think, I think that's a really good and tricky question. Uh, so, so one thing that I might do is, is try and sell you the work of Jerome Wakefield, Jerry Wakefield, and his harmful dysfunction analysis. So uh, illness is a harmful dysfunction. Uh, the dysfunction bit is the evolutionary science bit, uh, and then harm comes in in order to, I don't know, to solve some, some problems where it seems as though people have dysfunctions, but... It's not bothering them. Still, if, if you've adopted Wakefield's approach, there does look to be the beginnings of a fact of the matter. So that, that would be, if, you, if you're not familiar with his work, that, that would be a way of doing it. My own qualm with it, I mean, there are some technical problems with what your notion of function is. That these are problems that you get in the philosophy of language where biological functions are also used. Technical problems, but they're also just worries, worries about the intuition, about whether, whether our concept of illness should be a hostage to the fortune of what stories of evolutionary history are, are, are forthcoming. So there's a, that, that's, there's, there's a lurking thought there. If I could just say something more on the, on the addiction case... This reminds me of another problem. Gosh, I'm filled with problems this evening. God, isn't the subject difficult? Uh, which uh, uh, Neil Pickering, who's a lovely philosopher of psychiatry in New Zealand, highlights. Uh, and he points out that one of the ways in which people have tried to argue that, for example, mental illnesses as a whole really exist against, say, Thomas Satz's claim that they're a myth, or people who want to say that particular conditions are mental illnesses. He says that they often, the argument often takes the form of a likeness argument. What you first do is say, all illnesses have these features. And then you say, of this condition, alcoholism say, alcoholism has those features. Therefore, alcoholism is a, is a disease. But the, the problem, Pickering points out, is that for the symptoms, it's nearly always the case that there are rival descriptions. So if you're thinking that Smithers 
has, alco has alcoholism. You might talk about his inability as a, a medical pathology to resist drink. But if you think that Smithers is, a, is the town drunk, you might describe his inability to avoid alcohol as a moral weakness. The same crude behaviour can be, can be labelled one way, medically pathologically, and on the other hand, morally sort of pathologically. And that produces different answers when you feed it back into the likeness argument. And Pickering's conclusion is you're just not going to get any theory neutral answer to the question, is X really a medical condition or not? Because you will always beg the question in your characterizing of, of the symptoms. My worry is when it comes to capacity We'll, we'll have the same problem. What's the difference between a kind of moral weakness to avoid temptation and a medical weakness to avoid temptation? I suspect it's going to be really tricky at that point. This sort of reminds me a bit of um, the empirical study that, Matthew, you did about the different models that psychiatrists employ. And I think one thing that came out in that study is that relative to different kinds of disorders, different models might be deployed or different disorders might be amenable to one or the other model. I think you sort of suggested that that might actually be a strength of psychiatry rather than a problem necessarily. But Yeah, I mean, again, a, th a, theme, a theme from Jasper's where we started tonight is, is the idea of scientific pluralism and the idea of, you know, being ecumenical about your models and, and choosing your, your, um, um, your ways of explaining things. As, as Tim said, I mean, this is my crude attempt was to try and um, take the notion of med medicine and illness away from biomedical narrow view and include the moral and, or possibly as an argument, include these moral and, and social things as well, or epistemic things in the case of delusion try and get around that, so expand the notion of medicine rather than constrain us. But certainly yes, psychiatrists are, are, are pretty pragmatic and change their views about things and I'm sure that's a context of history and, 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 and training. I mean, my, so my own empirical research is about autism and schizophrenia at the moment and it seemed to be almost like an act of fiat these two were, were um, uh, disconnected because empirically, it's probably a good reason to believe there may be a, a close relationship. Right. Well, um, unfortunately, we're already out of time. I'm sure lots of questions still remain. Um, so hopefully we can maybe do another session on this fascinating topic sometime soon. So please join me in thanking the three speakers. And thank you all for coming as well.